Welcome to the Practical Employment Law Podcast, a podcast covering all aspects of American employment law. I'm your host, Mark Chumley. Those of you who have listened to this podcast for a while know that I'm not a big fan of making predictions. However, there are several interesting things going on in the employment law world, so instead of predictions, I'm going to give you the top seven issues I'm keeping an eye on in the coming year. So in no particular order, here we go. Issue number one, the future of federal agencies. So right out of the gate, I lied. There is a reason why I'm putting this one first, and it will become apparent as we go through the rest of the list. The U.S. Supreme Court is scheduled to hear oral arguments in two consolidated cases on January 17th. The cases are Loper Bright v. Raimondo and Relentless Inc. v. Department of Commerce. Both cases deal with National Marine Fisheries Service regulations on commercial fishing vessels. What does this have to do with employment law, you might ask? Well, have you ever wondered how all of these federal agencies we deal with in the employment law world are always making rules? Why do OSHA, the EEOC, the Department of Labor Wage and Hour Division, and all the others get to make the rules? The answer to that question is found in a Supreme Court case from 1984, Chevron v. Natural Resources Defense Council, which held that courts must defer to agency expertise when a statute that an agency implements is not specifically clear, as long as it is a reasonable interpretation of the statute. This is known as the Chevron Doctrine, and it has empowered agency rulemaking for the past 40 years. Essentially, agencies are authorized to make rules, and challenges have to be based on the reasonable interpretation standard, with courts giving deference to the agency interpretation. This is, what, this is what has driven the debate over any number of rules in recent years. Think, for example, of the OSHA COVID vaccine mandate rule. Remember that? Now, what is interesting about the two cases pending before the Supreme Court is that the court is not just considering the usual question of whether the agency's rules are reasonable interpretations of the underlying statute. They're also considering the entire Chevron doctrine and whether it should continue to exist. This is a big deal in general, and an especially big deal in the world of employment law, which is ruled over in large part by agency rulemaking. If the court does away with the Chevron doctrine or substantially amends the doctrine, it will take away a huge amount of agency power and change the face of federal employment law. I, for one, can't wait to see what happens. And one more point, several of the remaining issues on my list for this episode involve agency actions. So obviously a big question is what happens to all of these pending actions if the Supreme Court strikes down the Chevron Doctrine? Issue number two, non-compete agreements. I confess that I'm kind of tired of talking about non-compete agreements, but the topic remains hot and I cannot avoid it here or in my practice. You probably recall that the Federal Trade Commission issued a rule last year that would essentially ban all non-compete agreements. The final vote on that rule is scheduled for April of this year at the earliest. If the FTC votes to enact the rule, I would expect legal challenges on several fronts, so this issue will likely continue to develop throughout the coming year. However, a couple of additional points are worth keeping in mind. First, the rule is about non-compete agreements. The way it is written indicates that it could also impact non-solicitation agreements, but it does not ban them per se. Also, the rule does not touch on the topic of trade secret protection, which is covered by state and federal laws. 
So bear in mind that if the rule passes and survives legal challenges, it does not mean the end of litigation over employees' post-employment conduct. It just shifts the focus away from non-competes. Another thing to bear in mind is that many states have passed their own laws, either outlawing non-compete agreements entirely or restricting them significantly. For example, many states now have laws that limit non-competes to only those employees earning over a statutory threshold amount. So if the FTC rule does not go into effect, employers still face difficult compliance issues arising from various state laws. On the whole, I expect the non-compete area to remain very active over the next year. Issue number three, the Joint Employer Rule. The National Labor Relations Board issued its final rule establishing a new standard under the National Labor Relations Act for determining whether two employers are joint employers. The effective date of this new rule has been extended to February 26, 2024. Under the new rule, an entity is a joint employer of another employer's employees if the two share or co-determine the employee's essential terms and conditions of employment. The final rule provides a list of the essential terms and conditions. Number one, wages, benefits, and other compensation. Number two, hours of work and scheduling. Number three, the assignment of duties to be performed. Number four, the supervision of the performance of duties. Number five, work rules and directions governing the manner, means, and methods of the performance of duties and grounds for discipline. Number six, the tenure of employment, including hiring and discharge. And number seven, working conditions related to safety and health of employees. The reserved right to control at least one of these essential elements and conditions will be given determinative weight in the analysis whether or not such control is exercised and without regard to whether any such exercise or control is direct or indirect. This means that even indirect control, such as through intermediaries like staffing companies or temporary agencies, is sufficient to establish joint employer status. Obviously, this rule could have a big impact on any business that uses contracted services, as well as specifically impacting staffing agency and franchised businesses. There's already been opposition to this rule in the form of a lawsuit against the NLRB, and it will be interesting to see how this issue plays out over the next year. Issue number four, the future of the tip credit. The tip credit is a big deal in the restaurant industry. It allows employers to pay tipped employees at a rate below minimum wage if they make a sufficient amount in tips. On the federal side, the Raise the Wage Act of 2023 would incrementally raise minimum wage to $17 by 2028 and eliminate the tip credit. Now, it's not clear whether this law will pass, but if it does, it will have a major impact on the restaurant industry where employers typically pay servers below minimum wage relying on the tip credit. I should also mention that in Ohio, Senate Bill 146 is currently pending and would incrementally raise Ohio minimum wage to $15 by 2027 and also eliminate the tip credit. And there are similar bills in several other states as well. So if your business uses the tip credit, this is definitely one to watch in 2024. Issue number five, the DEI backlash. If you follow the news, you may have heard some references to the DEI backlash. This really started last year with the Supreme Court's decision in Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard, which struck down admissions programs at Harvard and the University of North Carolina as violating the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment by using race as a factor in admissions decisions. As a threshold matter, 
The decision did not interpret Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, which governs the employment practices of private employers. The decision principally interprets the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment and secondarily applies that reasoning to Title VI claims because discrimination that violates the Equal Protection Clause committed by an institution that accepts federal funds also constitutes a violation of Title VI. While the Equal Protection Clause directly applies only to public institutions, including the University of North Carolina, which was a party to the lawsuit, Title VI applies to entities that receive federal financial assistance, which includes Harvard. Given the limited scope of the decision, it has no direct immediate impact on private employers. Title VII and analogous state laws prohibit the use of race and other protected classifications in employment decisions. This has been the case for a long time, and the new decision didn't change that. Also, it is well settled that Title VII permits voluntary DEI efforts. However, the decision has prompted several plaintiffs' firms to start looking for clients who have been the victims of reverse discrimination. Also, in a July 13, 2023 letter, attorney generals of 13 states issued a warning to CEOs of Fortune 100 companies threatening serious legal consequences over race-based employment preferences and diversity policies. The letter states that challenges to employers' diversity programs could stem from a comparison of the legal framework under Title VI, which governs race discrimination in government-funded programs, and Title VII, which governs race discrimination in employment. Specifically, the letter refers to Justice Gorsuch's concurrence in the Harvard decision, where he reasoned that principles of Title VI apply equally to Title VII and other laws restricting race-based discrimination in employment and contracting. The letter also notes that courts routinely interpret Title VI and Title VII in conjunction with each other, adopting the same principles and interpretation for both statutes. So where does this leave us? Well, with the current divisive political environment, including a general backlash against so-called wokeness, the door is open to legal challenges to DEI programs. At the very least, employers who do have DEI plans should take some time to review them and their hiring practices for legal compliance. Again, this is an issue to watch throughout the coming year. Issue number six, challenges to the gig economy. I've talked about the gig economy on the podcast before. The gig economy generally refers to an economic model where the workers are engaged in freelance side hustle positions with a lot of flexibility. The big names in the gig economy are businesses like Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, and VRBO, but there are also a lot of people doing gig work on a more informal basis. Now, I love the gig economy, and so do a lot of other people who like businesses like Uber and DoorDash, and so do a lot of people who work for the gig economy. But you know who hates the gig economy with the intensity of a thousand suns? The government. Yes, it seems like the government, particularly the federal government, will stop at nothing to destroy the gig economy. The biggest issue with the gig economy from an employment law standpoint is the distinction between independent contractors and employees. Obviously, gig economy businesses want to treat their workers as independent contractors, while government regulatory efforts focus on classifying them as employees. Now, on January 9th of this year, the long-awaited new final rule on employee or independent contractor classification under the Fair Labor Standards Act was released by the Department of Labor. The final rule rescinds the 2021 rule, 
that implemented a different analysis of what constitutes an independent contractor. The new rule adopts a six-factor test focused on the economic reality of the relationship between a potential employer and the worker. The six factors include a worker's opportunity for profit or loss, investments made by the worker and the potential employer, the degree of permanence of the work relationship, the degree of control an employer has over the work, the extent to which the work performed is integral to the employer's business, and the use of a worker's skill and initiative. This new rule rescinds the prior 2021 rule passed by the Trump Administration Department of Labor. That rule focused on the factors of opportunity for profit or loss and degree of control. The new rule does not focus on any particular factor, and analysis is based on the totality of the circumstances. In the broadest possible terms, I think it's fair to say that the old rule favored the independent contractor side, and the new rule is more likely to result in a finding of employee status. Of course, expect the new rule, which goes into effect on March 11th, to be subject to legal challenges. And to reiterate an earlier point, the whole status of rulemaking and deference to agency interpretation of the law is dependent on the outcome of the Supreme Court case involving the Chevron Doctrine. Issue number seven, artificial intelligence. This is another subject that is getting a crazy amount of attention in the media and everywhere else. I did a recent episode about the employment law implications of AI. I think the biggest issue with AI and employment law at present is its use in recruiting and hiring, which may create potential liability for various forms of discrimination. Late last year, the EEOC issued its Strategic Enforcement Plan for fiscal years 2024 through 2028. One of the specific points in the plan reads as follows. Recognizing employers' increasing use of technology, including artificial intelligence and machine learning, to target job advertisements, recruit applicants, and make or assist in hiring and other employment decisions, end quote. So at a minimum, I think we can expect the EEOC to increase its focus on AI in the coming year. How that plays out will be worth keeping an eye on, especially if your business uses AI in hiring and recruiting. This has been the Practical Employment Law Podcast. Thanks for listening. Please watch for future episodes wherever you get podcasts. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review. If you would like to contact me about any aspect of the podcast, my email address is mchumley at kmklaw.com, and my full contact information is in the show notes. This podcast was created for general informational purposes only and does not constitute legal advice or a solicitation to provide legal services. Although we attempt to ensure that the podcast is complete, accurate, and up-to-date, we assume no responsibility for its completeness, accuracy, or timeliness. The information in this podcast is not intended to create, and listening to it does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. Listeners should not act upon this information without seeking professional legal counsel.